Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode features an exclusive conversation with director Randall Kleiser at a DGA Special Projects Committee event to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Grease. One of the highest grossing and most acclaimed movie musicals of all time, the 1978 film brought together John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John as Danny and Sandy, star-crossed lovers who fall for one another during summer vacation and unwittingly end up members of rival cliques at the same high school in the fall. His other directing credits include the 70mm 3D film Honey, I Shrunk the Audience and the feature films The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, The Blue Lagoon, Summer Lovers, Flight of the Navigator, White Fang, Big Top Pee Wee, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, North Shore, and the 1996 AIDS drama It's My Party. Following a special 4K restoration screening of Grease at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles last month, Mr. Kleiser sat down with director Jeremy Kagan to discuss the making of the film along with several others in his filmography. During their conversation, Mr. Kleiser talks about how the ending to the drive-in scene featuring the song Sandy was a happy accident, why he likes to play music on the set in order to maintain a calm atmosphere, and shares the first place he usually goes when he arrives on a set. Standing ovation. Thank you so much. I've never had that. <laughs> well, it's well-deserved. Well-deserved indeed. Are you serious you only had five weeks prep on this? Five weeks of prep, yes. 53 days of shooting. How many? 53. What did you do in the five weeks? I'm, I'm, there seems to be so much to prepare for. Am I, I, did you go back to Bob Wise and get help? <laughs> well, you know, Pat Birch had done the Broadway show before, so she had, and a lot of these people had been in the Broadway play. You know, like uh, one of them is here tonight, Barry Pearl, who played Duty. Where are you, Barry? He's back there. Duty. And, and Barry had, Barry is one of those people that was in the play. And, and uh, so Pat had worked with them before, and, and uh, so a lot of it had been done ahead of time. Yeah, but, but yes, staged for a proscenium stage, but not for where you're going to put the camera and how you're going to how you're going to stage. Well, in those five weeks, we had a soundstage at Paramount, and we had a, a, a piano and a drum guy. We had actually Cubby, Broco Cubby Broccoli from the Mouseketeers was our our <laughs> our. Uh, our, our drummer, and that was exciting for me because I used to watch him on Mickey Mouse Club as a kid. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, so five weeks, we Pat rehearsed with them during the day. To, uh, the uh, uh, during the mornings, she rehearsed the musical numbers, and I rehearsed the the dialogue in the afternoons. And then lunchtime, we would do the transitions. And when you would see uh, the musical number staged. Were you storyboarding at the time? How are you beginning to say, okay, this is the way I'm going to yeah. mount well, this? I worked with Bob Butler, Bill Butler, yep. who's the cameraman, and Pat, and we worked together, and I did sketches, yes, and uh, 
like I said, we studied uh, West Side Story for the for that one number, and um, I think it just a lot of it's very sloppy and thrown together, which I think is one of the reasons why it seems to uh, appeal. It's not real slick. It's not everything's not perfect, you know. But you're you're only shooting one camera, I assume, or am I wrong? Were you no, we we shot uh, one camera on certain numbers, but most of them we had several cameras. You did. Yeah. Uh huh. Peter Collister is here tonight too, who was uh, on the set. But with that, did you? I mean, some sometimes there are moving camera shots that are part of the musical numbers. So, if you've got multiple cameras, do you remember how you were handling this? Um, well, certain like in the dance contest, we had a lot of cameras because it was so chaotic. Um, and this last number uh, was a lot of cameras. With um, you're the one that I won. It was one camera. And uh, with summer nights, I think we had pretty much maybe two cameras because we didn't want the, uh, the, the, the dolly to get in the way of the others. When you were doing, I'm looking like for the Frenchie song in particular, where it starts That was in, one camera, yeah. And, and, but the transition and how are you going to get in there and using sort of a semi-special effect <laughs> and, then, then, and then having Frankie Avalon in that other set. Yeah. Do you remember how that evolved for you? Well, we were originally, my original drawings had her looking at a, a jukebox and seeing the Teen Angel come out of the jukebox. And then um, we just uh, got this idea. I had seen, um, there's a, a young uh, digital artist named Ron Hayes who had done a uh, sequence in Demon Seed, which was about computers. And it was one of the first uses of computer graphics. And I asked him if he could do this effect to introduce Frankie. And so that's how it came about. And do you remember also, just in terms of the, the, on that as an example of wardrobe as well? I mean, they've got these fabulous things that they're wearing. And do you remember how that all evolved? Albert Walski, uh, our costume designer, came up with that idea. He just thought uh, curlers were ugly. And so he thought if he made them into a little pyramid, it, it might have uh, uh, like a... a a silver pyramid, it might be interesting. So that was his idea. Do you remember of all the musical numbers, which one was for you the most challenging? Ah, uh, well, I think the drive-in was challenging because we didn't know what we were going to put on the screen. Uh, we had sent away for uh, 20 popcorn trailers, you know, period ones. And uh, that night, we still didn't know what we were going to show. So I, I stopped production and ran all 20 and spotted the uh, hot dog jumping in the bun. <laughs> and I asked the uh, playback operator if he could figure a way to sync the ending of the song with that. And we were also shocked and, and, and surprised to see that that worked. Because normally, you know, you do that way in advance, you'd have it all worked out. But there were a lot of uh, happy accidents on this. So, In terms of putting together your cast, did were some of them, were you making decisions particularly for the, the secondary, I'm going to call them the secondary roles, not your leads. Did they have to sing? Was that part of where you were thinking? Did you sort of like only see people who could? Or were you, you know, well, net I was mean, bigger than that? Like, um, I think we just tried to cast the actors and figured we'd figure out how to do the singing. Uh, most of them had, uh, some of them had been on the Broadway stage and so had done that. And uh, of course, Olivia was a big pop star at the time. John had done singing. Uh, uh, most of the cast had already sung. So. Stockard as well? Stockard had done singing, but we didn't know she was that good. I mean, she, she really acted that song, which was fantastic. You know, I really, she, she told me uh, that um, she was approaching the part like Lady Macbeth. <laughs> you know, and I asked her, well, did you break down 
your script into actions and beats and she said, of course. So that song, if you watch it, I mean, every line has a meaning to it. You know, she really played that well. You know, you, you credit Nina Foch as one of your teachers as you started the best here. one ever. And what did she, when you were at USC, do you remember some of the things that you still use that she taught you? Well, yes, and, and uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Jeremy, because if you go to ninafajproject.com, you can see her work. We, George Lucas fi financed a, um, a DVD, uh, four hours of her class, which uh, she passed away in 2008, and uh, we, we luckily preserved her work, and she was the best teacher uh, I ever had, and I learned so much from her. And uh, one of the things that she taught was always have an intention and an action and an obstacle and break down every line in a script for your actors. Uh, uh, you don't often use it, but if you uh, write beside what the, each line what their action is, it's helpful when on the set, if they have a problem, you can just come up and whisper something to them. And, and I'm you, sure you've used this a million and, times. Uh, I luckily would argue with Nina about, do we have to do that for every single line or could it be just for part of the scene? Uh -huh. And she would look at me with those harsh, direct, laser beam eyes and say, every, every line. line. <laughs> and her son is here tonight. Uh, Dirk DeBrito's back there. Yay, Dirk. We have such a great audience here. In terms of your rehearsal with the actors, not with the musical numbers, did you have any time for that, and did you want it? Um, rehearsal not with the musical numbers. Well, yes, we, we, uh, we had um, a script that was written by um, Alan Carr and Bronte Wood. They were trying to imp improve the Broadway play, which did not need improving. And our producer, uh, our, our casting director, Joel Thurm, uh, who's here tonight too. Joel, are you there? <laughs> In the back there. He, um, <laughs> he came up with this idea uh, when we were sitting around the table um, when we would read the script that had been improved, supposedly, uh, and it wasn't working, to go back and have a, a secret uh, copy of the play uh, that we would go to. And so we would, we would slowly work our way back to the actual play. And that was his idea, and it worked. This being the first time, what was your process when you would walk on the set? How, and has that changed? <clears throat> well, um, I was just with Pat and, and, um, and Bill Butler because Bill had shot Jaws and he was, he was a real professional and Pat and I were like babes in Toyland because we had not done a film. So we were really rela rel uh, relying on uh, Bill and um, he was our guide, you know in terms of setting up shots, because I had only worked in uh, television where it was a square, as you remember, it was not wide. And this was suddenly a wide uh, aspect ratio, and we had to figure out how to frame for that. Uh, but how would you work with your actors in order to show Bill what he may then suggest to you? Well, just sort of the way I did in television, which was just, uh, you know, line it up and, and block it, and then he would say, well, maybe if you did it a little wider, it would work better. Uh, it was fairly similar to uh, directing television, except just wider. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thinking about your, your work, be, it, besides this, in addition to this film, and all of the other kinds of genres you've taken on, I remember once talking to John Cassavetes, and he was saying, you're, you're about to do a film with, uh, it's a period picture, and you've got kids, and you've got animals, so you're sort of on a suicide trip. 
<laughs> so here you are. I'm thinking about things like honey, I shrunk the kid. I blew up the kids. I mean, yeah. You've got a little kid that you have to cast and work yeah. with and direct. I'm and and you actually work with lots of kids. As I think about it, Flight right. of the Navigator. Mm -hmm. Your major star of that movie is that kid. Mm -hmm. um, what's been your process of finding the right kid? Well, with Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, we, we cast twins so that there'd be one that would be, always be available. And those kids were two years old, and they didn't even know they were in a movie. So <laughs> we'd have to trick them into everything. And uh, they learned quickly phrases like, uh, no rolling, when they'd say rolling, no rolling. And they'd learn phrases like, I want to go to my trailer. And <laughs> And we had, to, we had to put the father off camera and play guitar songs that they liked to get them to look in certain directions. That was really, really hard. But most times, you know, like with Joey Kramer on Flight of the Navigator, he came in and he read and he was able to cry on cue. So, you know, he was like a professional. Black person, but not a lot. In your casting process, what's the process? What do you do? Um, How do you I, meet a person? I really... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's funny that you're asking me these questions because I've watched Jeremy do this on stage for Meet the Nominees over 20 years and it's fun to be up here answering the questions. <laughs> <laughs> My casting process, uh, they just come in and I, they read or they videotape them and I, I look at the tapes, you know. And in the readings themselves, will you, in fact, redirect them? What's your process? If you want yeah, to find usually, out where you are. Well, you know, like most directors, um, in a casting session, <clears throat> this is something I learned from Nina, of course, was uh, give them one uh, little adjustment and see if they can do it. And if it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, just to see if they will follow your direction. And in this movie specifically, let's look at a couple movies and say, what was a part that was a challenge for you? Where, and, and I'm even thinking for, for the kids, you know, part of our process sometimes is, and particularly even in casting, a doubt. I'm not sure. So I sing, you know, bring them back. and you know, repeated sessions. What gives you the confidence to say this twin, that actor? Um, what makes you say it, do you know? I guess it's just an instinct. Uh, you, you just click. Uh, like, for instance, in this movie, Frenchie came in and started talking with that voice, and we knew in instantly she was the right person for it. A lot of the other people uh, were obvious because they had done the play. Um, in general, uh, you just kind of feel it, I think. It's an instinct. And... Were there in, in this one other, as you sort of go down the, the list of performers, were there parts that you were more concerned with, either the two groups, the, 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 the ladies or the, the guys that you found yourself, and did, and did you want to put them together, or did you put them together before you said, this is the group? Well, the, because a lot had worked on the play, they just came in and, and nailed it, you know? So, I mean, they had done it so many times uh, on stage that they were, they knew more than I did about where the jokes were, where the, where the so the, the casting all fell into place pretty easily. The the part that was exciting to me was casting the uh, people like Eve Arden and Sid Caesar. I mean, I'd grown up watching them on TV, and suddenly to be there, surreal. It was very surreal to be directing them. I, I've heard stories of that. Sid was not your original choice. Well, uh, it was Alan Carr wanted to use uh, Harry Reams from Deep Throat. <laughs> Do you know why? <laughs> well, he just thought it'd be kind of uh, interesting and, and uh, sort of disruptive. <laughs> <laughs> and the studio got wind and they said, no way. 
And uh, so Alan felt so bad that he paid Harry $5,000 out of his own pocket uh, as a kind of like a sorry about that thing. But we're glad that we got Sid Caesar because he was perfect. Using, you've worked, and I wasn't kidding about animals, you've worked with lots of them, with, from talking pigs to uh, Jed, who we both have in common. That's right, you did yeah, Journey correct. of Nadigan with, with the, do uh, the same dog we used in White Fang Fine, and yeah. in Journey of uh, Nadigan. Yeah. Um, what's been your, I know that that becomes an incredible challenge because everybody who has the animals says, can you do this? And the people always say, of course we can do it. And then you walk on the set and you find that they can't. How do you? How have you dealt with it in order to be able to, to handle it? Well, the biggest challenge I remember on Big Top Pee Wee, we wanted uh, this. Um, let's see. I think it was the pig was after the hippopotamus. Uh, they were in love and they were chasing them, and uh, you had to um, hit the hippopotamus to make it run, and you had to have a clicker to make the pig run and you had to time it so that they looked like they were chasing each other and make sure they didn't get too close because the hippo would eat the pig. <laughs> so that, that, that kind of <laughs> keeps you up late at night. <laughs> did, <laughs> did you, and I, I'm interested in, particularly when you have these kinds of complex sequences, the storyboarding process that you go through, do you make sketches yourself? Do you hand them to draw, uh, artists to then come back? What's How do you work this? I, I love to make the sketches myself, but in some cases I need an artist to do something, if it's a special effects sequence, where it has to be really precise. I, I like do little little drawings that are clear what's going on, but not 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 enough for visual effects house to, to take it over. And, and do it, so we hire, we bring in people for that. And how will you work it? Because in the, in the process, sometimes you're seeing another artist's vision of how a scene might work. In fact, it's great. I mean, often they come up with really uh, ideas I would never think of. So, you know, yeah, I love storyboard artists. To, it's fun to have uh, several storyboard artists take a sequence and break it down, and then you can take, pick and choose the, the moments that work. So sometimes you'll employ two or three others to, for the same sequence? Yes. Uh -huh. And then you, you'll... Pick and choose. In the whole issue of locations and, and production design, because I'm also thinking of, you know, Honey the Boat with the Kid, the nature of the White Fang, um, uh, the, the navigator and the design of the spaceships and that. Um, these are all, and of course, the locations that you chose here. What's your process of, of working with a production designer to get it uh, a style that you want? Um, lots of draw, uh, photos from magazines um, and uh, other movies. Um, uh, with, in the case of the location manager, our location manager is here tonight, right? Are you still here? I hear right. Yeah, right here. Our location manager for this week. And you get you hire great people who can find terrific locations, and um, that that helps. There seems to be some studio work that was done here as well, yes, and exteriors yes. as well as interiors. What made you make those choices, or do you remember? Um, I think just what was easiest, you know? I mean, if we were there and we were shooting and there was a way to shoot it there, we did, but uh, sometimes there wasn't, and we'd go to the stage, you know? Break it down that way. In, in scouting locations for something like a period picture, which is uh, White Fang, here you've got... Do you remember how you went through the process of, and in fact, you built cities, I assume? Yes, built we towns. built some towns up in uh, uh, Haines, Alaska, which are still there. They're using it as a tourist attraction now. But that was really, really fun to build a town. And um, 
uh, we, we built it with a, with a ship uh, there, so it looked like it was a, a wharf, but it was just a flat. But uh, it had a great, a great um, uh, scope to it, and very exciting, because we did it in the winter time, and then we came back in the spring, and, and, and the same town was there. And we, so we, we closed, that was an interesting thing. We closed the picture down for a couple months and came back, which is never done. But uh, it had been set up that way by a guy who was fired. <laughs> but initially, that was the plan. Yeah, it was a plan that, that this guy came up with, uh, uh, Adam Marins, who's now a producer. And um, it, was very, it was a brilliant plan because we got this great look and, of winter and spring. But uh, it, it cost money, and, and he was let go. <laughs> in, in integrating special effects, visual effects, which you are, you know, I mean, some of us in this audience know that you, every year, are responsible for showing us, through Digital Day, the newest uh, technologies that uh, our art and science has developed. And you really are an expert in this. And I can see in your own work it evolving in terms of what was available at that time and what is available now. Um, and I'm, I'm, how has your process gone to be able to engage in, oh, I would like this uh, you know, to be uh, accomplished? I want, I assume, for example, there's, there's once in White Fang, there's a, an endless line of people climbing up into the snow, and I assume that part of that was a mix of real people and something else. And where and how do you develop this? Where is that? Well, luckily, I have a brother who's a visual effects supervisor, Jeff Kleiser, right over here. <laughs> and as I've gone through my career, he has always let me know what the latest things are. Like when we did Flight of the Navigator, uh, the whole chrome ship that changed shape was, was something that he had been working out in a commercial and we actually hadn't been done and we figured out how to do it. And uh, James Cameron later did it in the next year in Terminator 2. And um, uh, he also worked on Blue Lagoon where he made the phosphorescent swimming underneath the water work by in an optical process so and then he turned me on to um, the uh, oculus rift about three or four years five years five four years ago something like that and that got me all interested in doing virtual reality as you've just done a series and are still working with that series we're almost done we're almost done and how many episodes have you done so far we have shot 12 episodes and they're each five minutes each but you wear the headset and you become a character in it. And it's so exciting because we're working with spatialized sound. And um, when an actor looks into a lens, it looks like they're looking at the lens. And in VR, when they look at, at the lens, it looks like they're looking at you because you're in the, in the space, especially in 3D with spatial sound. Because if somebody's talking here and someone's talking just next to them, you can hear it coming from two different sources. It's very, very specific, and it makes it very real. And talk about sound itself and how you approach sound. Not obviously this is a musical, but it seems to be an element, as I look at your pictures, that is an essential element for you, and I'm interested in when it enters your consciousness and how you develop it in your films. Well, like most people say that sound is 50% of the film, and so, um, you know, I think that the most important thing is to have really clear dialogue, and radio mics are really helpful. I remember watching um, Robert Altman movies where he would have 
radio mics on all the actors and allow them to improvise and then dial up the part that you want of what actor. And that, that I love doing. I did that in It's My Party, where we had a, a party sequence and I gave uh, all the actors um, uh, bits to, to play and then we would just dial up as the camera would go by them. Uh, dial them up, and then we did it in one shot in uh, in Greece when the kids are walking across, dancing across the the uh, the, the uh, gymnasium, and we go from one dialogue to another with radio mics. That was all from watching Altman. And in in, in music's part in it, well, actually, I want to deal with one piece of piece of dialogue. The voice of your computer in Flight of the Navigator. How did you make the choice for those? who don't know, it's actually an extremely amusing voice and a surprising yeah. voice, and I didn't recognize it initially. But yeah. what was your process? We were trying to make it look like it was an alien voice, so we did all kinds of experiments uh, with those vocal things that, that people use who lo lost their voice, and we tried um, playing uh, voices fast and slow and, and through filters and everything. And finally, we ended up um, with Pee Wee Herman. And how did that happen? Uh, I think, I guess I must have met Paul somewhere, and I asked him if he'd like to do a voice, because we were stuck, we couldn't figure out what voice to do, and, and he was interested in kid films, and so he said yes, and, uh, and that, of course, working with him on that led to me directing him in Big Top Pee Wee, so. In, did, be, having cast him, did you pre-record that material because the young boy who's in Flight of the Navigator is having, you know, obviously dialogue relationship with this computer, or did that come post? I think it was post, yeah. Wow. I think we just had like a script supervisor saying the lines to the boy. And then, because we didn't, we, we only found Paul like late in post when we couldn't figure out what to do, as I recall. Yeah. Do you listen to music while you're making a movie? I love to, yes, and uh, it's fun to have music on the set too. I think it calms the actors down. And have you used that to play for mm -hmm. setting a mood? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how has that worked? Great. I mean, you just it keeps everyone calm uh, and relaxed. You know, I think uh, I love having a relaxed set. I can't imagine how directors work where they scream and yell on the set. I've heard about different people. I don't imagine how you could get anything done that way. Can you? But then what do you do with your own tension? I mean, not every time you're going to have a hippo charging that you know <laughs> it's going to make you tense. How do you handle it when the, when you've got these 10 more shots to do, the sun's going down, what do well, you do? Well, I project calmness, but inside I'm like crazy. And, and you know, like I really need to get a massage at the end of the day because it's, but I, I never, I always try to appear like I'm very calm. Does anything get you angry? Not so far. No, I really, I've never blown up on the set, no. I, I keep it all <coughs> internal. And w at what point do you start to walk into the editing room? Oh, I, immediately. I, I mean, especially today with the way you can do it. The, at the end of the day, you can have a cut sequence, as you well know. And um, I, I love that. But there is something to be said about sitting in, a, in an editing room with a cam and an editor and giving 10 cuts and then reading a bunch of magazines and then and thinking about it and then seeing it and, and having the time to think about the cuts rather than have it just bam like that. And do you step away? I mean, in the process, some, some directors like to be there all the time within the editing room. How's, what's your process? I like there? to sit there the whole time. I like to edit myself actually too. Now that it's so easy with digital, it's, it's, I like to take sequences and work on them myself. 
were there sequences in Greece that didn't uh, ended up on the floor, and what were they? Only one. Um, there was a scene uh, when we ran the movie for Michael Eisner, head of Paramount, uh, right after Kanicki throws the milkshake. Oh no, Rizzo throws a milkshake at Kanicki. They run out of the shop, and uh, and Eisner said, "Well, what were they arguing about?" And we said, well, some kind of like little problem. He said, well, I think we need to film a scene about that. So we, we, the writers wrote a scene. We went and shot it. I don't remember anything about it because when we put it in the movie, it just stuck out like a sore thumb. Alan Carr called it the Martin Scorsese scene. <laughs> and we dropped it out. So I, I don't remember what it was about. That's the only thing we cut. In, you know, I, I watched a movie just getting it right. Can you? Talk a little bit. I don't know how many people in this. How many people in the audience just maybe have seen this movie? It's called Getting It Right. We've got a couple of viewers. My brother. <laughs> no, we have two more. Oh Ta yeah. Well, that was a wonderful movie. Uh, when I was uh, went to USC in the '60s, we watched movies like The Knack, Darling, um, Morgan. Morgan, Alfie, all those films about misfits in the '60s in in London. And I came across a novel called Getting It Right that was felt had the same feel, and I really wanted to make it. And I I, I got Jonathan Crane, uh, Sally Kellerman's husband, to put up the money for it, and we went to England and shot it with uh, Helen Bonham Carter and Lynn Redgrave and Sir John Gielgud. It was the most wonderful experience because I was taking this idea, and and making it exactly the way I I wanted to with no interference and. Uh, I love the way it turned out. It was a comedy, and it felt just like those movies that I watched in college. And the movie has a different texture to it than a lot of the, your other films. It's it, in a way, it's quieter, um, and um, and it's it's a also sort of it deals with the issues of of uh, love and maturity and relationships. Um, while you were making it. What was the? Why was it such a um, enjoyable experience for you? Uh, because I was working with all English actors, and they were so and, and a crew, English crew. They were amazing. The um, the actors just hit it every time. Uh, I didn't have to do much; just aim and shoot. You know, no direction really. Um, and the crew was so fascinating because they would be going talking on a Friday night about going to the opera or going to theater, uh, as opposed to taking their Winnebago's uh, to uh, <laughs> go water skiing. Uh, uh, so it was just this very classy kind of uh, experience, and, and being around all these English actors was really, really cool. Did, in, as you look at your own work now, what would you change in, in terms of any of the films that you look at? Uh, well, I, when I see films like tonight when I was watching Greece, I saw, man, I cut the actors off too much at the, at the feet. Yeah, they should see more feet. And there's a lot of bumpy things. You know, I saw all the way, all, lots and lots of things all the way through. But in a way, um, I, I, I think that's what it is and fine, you know. What's the first place you go to when you walk on the set? Where do you go first? Um, the catering truck. <laughs> Good. No. And what do you have? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Um, to the, to, I go to the exactly where I think the first shot will will be, and and start to plan out the day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
And will you then have your actors? Then what's next? I really am interested. If, uh, if we were following you now if <clears throat> tomorrow, if you're shooting another episode of Defrost, besides <laughs> the fact that we can't be anywhere because we'll be seen. Right, right. <laughs> well, table read is, is best to start with, where everyone sits around the table and, and works out the beats of the scene, like um, most directors work that way, and then and then you put it on their feet and and try to work out the blocking and uh, you know just. In, in the case of, of virtual reality, it's sort of like doing a, a theater in the round because uh, there is no 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 angle. It's all everywhere, and uh, you do have the camera in one spot. But uh, in general, I always sort of try to move the camera a little bit and have the actors move to it. So it's really interesting staging. It's fun to shoot in a 360, you know, and and uh, very much like a combination of play and movies. As you look at the various stages, from working with the writer to being on the, the final color timing, which of these stages do you find, for you, the most enjoyable? I think the fine cut. And why? Because that's when the movie comes alive. I mean, when you're, when you're, you're writing the movie three times, they say, right? You write it, you shoot it, and then you edit it. And the, the third time you write is the editing and and the fine t the fine cut is when you take a few frames off here a few frames off there and then suddenly it becomes alive it becomes the movie that you want and will you show this movie to friends before you start showing it to the general public and how do you get yourself confident enough to say this is my version or this is the version well uh, yeah i do show it to friends but then there's always the um the old standard um you know the what should we call it? Please? Yes, those screenings we, we all... We, the, the I, I blocked it. Yeah, the test screenings, where you have uh, 20 people from a mall come in and, and sit in the front row and watch it, and then they tell, they say, I didn't like that character, and, and then the studio executives go, oh, we better cut that character, you know? Things like that. That's the worst. And have you learned things from that? Particularly because, I mean, some of your movies have been, well, I'll say more comic, so therefore you want to know if the laugh's working. Um, well, what I've done for in that case, when uh, I was worried that the uh, those that that one person in the in the um, focus group would screw it up, I put cameras on the audience at, with infrared light, and so uh, when there'd be jokes, uh, I I had I could show the producers, okay, this joke works. Look, everyone's laughing. You know. When did you do that? Uh, that was done with a movie I did called Love Wrecked. And it was just to make sure that uh, they didn't try to cut some of the jokes. And where were, if, 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 if it was showing out, where were the cameras? They were on the sides, you know, and they had infrared light on the audience. And then I was up in a booth where I could see all the, all the audience and, and we, we, we recorded it so that it was in sync to the movie. Did the studio know you were doing this? Oh, yeah. They paid for it. And and were they excited by the process? How they, did they, how they did were they confused. They didn't know if it was worth it, and um, you know, was it worth the money? And I said, just trust me, and let's do it. And we did it, and it it, it was really for me, not for them, just to prove that certain jokes shouldn't go. Is there a point when you when you can let go of the film? Is there a point where well, you, you have to, as you know, you have to let it go, uh, and uh, that's just the way movies are yeah although today now you can go back and change everything like <laughs> you know with the digital technology you can have a preview and uh change all the prints the next day you know uh, that's what's amazing the dcp we were just talking about um as you think about 
the newer generations, because I know you've taught as well, what are some of the things that you would say, I've learned and I would like you to at least know this so that you can learn it? I think most of, mostly I would say to all students that I meet um, to make uh, films that um, are, are not copying other movies, that are something that comes from them inside, something that uh, moves them, something that's dangerous, something that they don't want to uh, necessarily reveal something that's painful or something that's emotional, something that's uniquely them. And then, in order to get it across, I would say, look at the Nina Fosh DVD to learn how to express it. Of the films that you've made, which were the ones that you would have said, I did that? I'd say It's My Party and Getting It Right are the two that I'm most uh, am connected to. Got it. Mm -hmm. And explain both, why? Well, it, it, getting it right because it was, it was the, a tribute to those 60s movies. And, and it's my party because it was a very personal film about uh, uh, an event that happened um, with a, a friend who took his own life after learning he was going to die of AIDS. And so uh, <coughs> it was an actual party that, that happened. And, and uh, one of the people who was at the party is here, Cheryl back there. Cheryl. Um, it was very emotional. And everybody who was at that party, it changed them. It was like such a dramatic and uh, uh, emotional event. And so making that movie was like sort of therapy. As you look at movies that have touched you, besides these two that are more personal, what are the movies that you would say, these movies really influenced me? Um, the Ten Commandments, because Nina was in it, and the opening of the Red Sea was something that, as a 10-year-old, made me want to be a director. And recently, I just was totally in love with the movie Coco. I thought that was the most spectacular film I've seen in, in, in 10 years because of what it, the message it got across to kids about not being afraid of death, about thinking about family, and, and uh, I just think that was such a responsible movie and so well done, too. And uh, the director was one of Nina's students. Amazing. Talk about the animation se sequence that we just saw. That was done by the guy who did uh, Lady and the Tramp. And he kind of just did that all on his own. I mean, he, he took that little, that little audio and, and came to us with it all done. I didn't really work with him at all. I just, he just delivered it. Were you surprised by some of it? Yeah. Because he mixes uh, you know, some, all kinds of images. It's not yeah. just uh, animated. It was just uh, out of the blue. He just dropped it on me, and I went, wow. You know, I, I really had nothing to do with it. And had he, had he, was he your choice, or did it come through the studio? You no, know, I think it came through, uh, maybe Alan Carr had found him. Uh, I don't, I was not really, I was, that was happening while I was shooting, so I, I don't really know how that came about, really. In, in choosing um, color palettes, is that part of also your initial preparation? Is that something you deal with? Well, yeah, especially in this movie, it was all pinks and, and, and bubble gum, and you know, that was kind of the look of it. Um, for White Fang, it was, of course, blues because of the snow, and uh, you know, each, each movie has its own flavor in a way, I could say. And in, in, in that process, I'm interested in how you bring your team together and what you share with them. Because you did say photographs and you did say movies, but I'm curious whether you also say there's a style to this particular movie and what the language is that you might be using as mm. you communicate to 
The best uh, artist I ever worked with was Nestor Almendros, the cameraman, and he approached every movie uh, with with a painter in mind. And when we did Blue Lagoon, uh, he wanted to uh, use Paul Gauguin as his guide. And he has a book called A Man in the Camera where every chapter is it talks about which artist he, he emulated. And uh, I learned a lot from him about that. Um, watching movies that have the same style. I remember we watched Hurricane, the John Ford movie, sure. uh, to get ideas of camera moves and things like that. So watching movies, I think. Talk one. about, uh, <laughs> you've taken two, I would think, very tough locations. I would assume that Blue Lagoon, particularly the stuff that had to be done on the water, was a difficult location, as clearly White Fang was as well. What's your experience when you are now in, you know, not on a, a studio set, open the door, you're there. This is, you've got to walk here, you've got to fly here, you've got to move here. How do you keep the enthusiasm of everybody on these uh, I think challenging locations. When we shot Blue Lagoon, I went to uh, Australia and I met with crew members. And I, uh, the first thing I asked them was, "Do you ever go camping?" And if they said yes, then they got the job. <laughs> and if they said no, they didn't, because we we lived in tents during Blue Lagoon and uh, on a on a on a uh, island that had no electricity or roads or water. We had to bring everything in, and so. Um, you know, just the sense of adventure. And same thing with, with White Fang. We, we also lived uh, in uh, trailers for White Fang. And again, we asked, did you, do you camp? Do you camp? Do, you, I, do I camp? <laughs> Not so much anymore. I kind of like room service. <laughs> <laughs> in Blue Lagoon, um, working with I, I, these actors and dealing with the issue of nudity and non-nudity, how did you handle all of that? Um, well, it, interestingly, um, we had uh, a stunt double for Brooke, and uh, Chris was fine doing whatever we needed, but with Brooke, uh, we had a, a stunt double, and she broke her leg uh, just before coming down to the island, and we were in Fiji, and we had no stunt double. So we asked the... Um, uh, a girl who's a dolphin trainer who couldn't catch dolphins so we said how would you like to be a stunt double and so she said yes and she was 35 and she was playing a 14 year old and it, it worked out okay uh, uh, she also swam underwater and uh, when our caterer quit she became the caterer as well so <laughs> so she would uh, she would make lunch and then swim naked and then go back and make dinner so. <laughs> You know, I, I, the, the, the issue of, of, of the hair in that movie, her hair, talk about Well, we used uh, toupee tape to tape her uh, hair to her breasts, or a wig to her breasts. And years later, I met Heidi Fleiss, the, the madam, and she said when she saw Blue Lagoon, she got that idea, and she and all her friends would run around with toupee tape on their breasts. <laughs> that sort of led her down the wrong path, I guess. You know, the relationships that you build on with a family when you make a movie, and they're tight, and then you move on, and those relationships sort of separate. Right. And then you reunite. 
have, are there some people who you have either continually worked with or you say, you know, these, this is part of my family now? Well, a lot of them are here tonight, yes. Uh, I think uh, there are people that come back over and over again. They do feel like family. And, um, yeah, it's great when you can work with them again. I, I, I love that, when you can have a group that you continue with. Well, you've established an audience that is a part of your family here, and we thank you for making us often very happy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Nice job. We hope you enjoyed listening to this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the discussion on our website at dga.org slash events. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.